0: Welcome to episode 158 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Friday, 28th of April, 2017.
1: The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to JensenUSA.com slash The Spokesman and now for a limited time new customers to jensen usa who are referred by the spokesman get 10 percent off one item simply enter the spokesman no spaces at checkout hey everybody it's david from the fredcast cycling podcast at thefredcast.com. i'm the host and producer of the spokesman cycling roundtable podcast for show notes links and other information simply go to our website at the and now, here are the Spokesmen. Hi there, I'm
0: Carlton Reed of BiteBiz.com, and this is another one of those spokesman specials, in that it doesn't star Donna, David, Tim, Nicole, Jim, or any of the other regulars. In fact, apart from David's voice doing the ads, there are no Americans on this show whatsoever. I know, shocking mind you, I do consider myself an honorary American. My max spell check is set for American spellings because the publisher of my books is Ireland Press of Washington DC. I've even been known to use sidewalk instead of pavement. Talking about pedestrians, the conflict between urban walking and urban cycling is one of the many subjects I raise with my first guest. Laura Laker is a freelance cycle journalist and I interviewed her earlier today because of a great article she wrote for The Guardian. Full disclosure, she also writes for Bike Biz. We also talked about a new Kickstarter project hoping to rescue hundreds of miles of forgotten 1930s protected British cycleways. Full disclosure, I'm one of the project's creators. My second and final guest is the author of a bunch of books about bicycling up hills. In fact, Simon Warren is a one-man industry with books, smartphone apps, blogs and more all about tackling the steeps, including 100 Tour de France climbs. So let's get to the show. I am with Laura Laker and Laura is somebody who uh, I know from Bike Biz in that she's written some very good articles uh, on. Well, the last one you did, Laura, was on Brexit in uh, in uh, the impact of Brexit for for the bike industry. Yeah. Yep. So you've been doing. You've done quite a few articles for Bikers now, haven't you?
2: I have. Yeah, I've been doing about one or two a month in the magazine. Mm. So on anything sort of industry related, from how companies can use how businesses can use social media to their advantage to the impact of Brexit, to what's bike packing and do shops need to know about it? What do they need to know? It's been really interesting, actually. It's been an interesting process for me, sort of learning about different aspects of the cycle industry because I've come from, more from the sort of advocacy side. So, yeah, I've been quite enjoying that.
0: Well, I do want to talk, <clears throat> excuse me, I do want to talk about that side and and who you are and and what you do in in this small, interesting sphere that we, we seem to be inhabiting at the moment. Uh, yeah. But the reason I want to talk to you today is because you wrote this very, very good article in The Guardian, which was uh, discussing the health benefits of cycling. So that now quite famous and world famous study, in fact, which it did go all over the world yeah. uh, on on the health benefits of cycling, the biobank study uh, where it interviewed uh, 250,000 people in effect in this study. So a a big, big, robust, um, almost, you know, full population study. And, but the angle you took in The Guardian, which I found really interesting, uh, was your take on, you don't cycle because of the health benefits. Mm. So tell us a little bit about why you cycle and why you wrote that article
2: yeah so for me I think unlike some many cycling journalists I didn't come from cycling I came from sort of journalism angle and when I was at university when I first started cycling in London I was actually studying nutrition health and fitness originally I was going to be a dietitian that was my big plan and then partway through this degree in Cardiff I realized actually being a dietitian wasn't for me at all. Seeing sick people was too sad for me. Mm-hmm. And um, and I thought, well, what am I going to do with my life then? And um, I've been involved with a local radio station in my hometown in Somerset. And I thought, well, journalism, I can do that. So I went, moved to London, changed my degree slightly to this sort of broader health um, element. And then um, took a journalism course afterwards. But um, I was going to write about sort of health and fitness as a journalist and then shortly after my my journalism course which was a sort of 6 month intensive postgraduate course i um ended up doing some volunteering for the london cycling campaign and having always been interested in the environment and weirdly enough sort of worrying about road safety as a child <laughs> Because um, we had many cats that have been run over over the years. I thought this is desperately unfair. Why was everyone driving everywhere? I remember writing this very long poem as a child about why you know why people were driving everywhere. It didn't make any mm-hmm. sense to me. <laughs> and um, yeah, so anyway, so I ended up at the Winter cycling campaign, writing their newsletter every other week, and I just suddenly saw, um, having started cycling in university. Uh, thanks to this friend of mine, I just suddenly saw cycling as the sort of solution to urban transport problems and congestion and pollution and having always felt very strongly that, you know, the car has its place, um, but, you know, we're just using it far too much. So, um, yeah, so I just got, all after that, all I wanted to write about was cycling and just trying to encourage more people to realise the the benefits just in terms of, you know, the pure joy of cycling from A to B and, and just seeing the city in a whole new way, really just feeling like, I don't know, feeling like the city is yours, you end up sort of owning it in a way. And you really experience it in a way that people who have to rely on public transport or are sort of enclosed in a box don't get to do. And even in the rain, it's just such a joyous experience for me, being able to power yourself along and nip, through the traffic and, and yeah, it's so much freedom. And I thought, you know, more people need to experience this.
0: Wonderful. So the, the time that you've been writing has been quite a, an active time in, in cycle advocacy in yeah. that, you know, during that time, we've had Boris Johnson's come along and he's mm-hmm. done this, well, perhaps this 10 year, 1 billion pound plan for cycling mm. including uh, at least 12 miles so far with with more hopefully in the pipeline or protected cycling super highways mm. so what kind of shift have you seen with that kind of stuff happening
2: yeah so I started I guess the time I was at university and this friend encouraged me to start cycling in London that was probably 10 years ago now um and at the time very few people were cycling really. I mean, you're kind of a little bit of an oddball and and since then, obviously it's grown enormously and particularly in the last, I guess, five years or so. I often think that if I'd been if I'd been where I am now, sort of twenty years ago, it would have been a very frustrating situation. And I always feel for those and admire those people who've been sort of chipping away at this advocacy piece for sort of twenty years and in which time very little happened Mm. in those earlier years. But yeah, it's been a huge change. And obviously having a politician stand up and pin their colours to the cycling mast, as it were, and actually invest the money and see this as a solution for the urban environment, it's been a huge change. And I think inspiring not only for advocates and cities around the UK, but around the world. And um, yeah, obviously having these physical routes now that are protected people can now point at these and say look at the huge numbers of people using them there's obviously this pent-up demand and it becomes very sort of hard to argue against investing in cycling as a means of mass trans- transit
0: is that a london thing i mean obviously you're now you're not from london but you're now living in london so you've got london mm. goggles on if you like yeah whereas i'm in newcastle and yes we've got a protected cycling superhighway-ish in uh, in the centre of Newcastle but we're not getting anywhere near the same investment I mean that London's basically getting more than the rest of the UK put together so have you looked around the UK and do do you extrapolate what's happening in London to elsewhere do you think we can do the sort of things that London are doing elsewhere in the country
2: I think we can I think I think the realisation is there that this can happen, but what's lacking now is the leadership from elsewhere around the country. Obviously, um, I'm from uh, near Taunton in Somerset, and you go back there, and there are painted bike lanes now, but I think one of the last times I was there, I saw some altercation between a, um, a someone in a car and someone on a bike, and obviously there's not, there's not the infrastructure everywhere, and I think politicians are still... I don't know, just still in many ways, seeing things through the perspective of the windscreen from behind the windscreen, not really seeing the potential to change the streets from what they are today to what they could be. So, yeah, I think there's still a long way to go. I think the I think the city mayors have there's a big potential there for change to happen. And I know that Manchester is obviously investing heavily in cycling and buses and trying to get people out of their cars. And I think that the more cities are able to do that, and of course in Leicester with Peter Soulsby, I know he's done fantastic stuff with sort of re- reversing the 1960s gyratories and uh, building those protected bike routes. So yeah, it is happening, but obviously the political will is severely lacking in this country still. Um, in the in the most part,
0: uh, political will. Sadiq Khan, Mayor of London. Do you see him weakening compared to to Boris Johnson in that he hasn't? Well, certainly the the construction has mm. absolutely slowed down to yeah. a, to an absolute crawl. Mm. So, do you see maybe after this perder period, do you see after the election uh, anything happening, anything picking up?
2: Mm. Well, I was at the Hackney Cycling Conference yesterday. And Sadiq Khan's walking and cycling commissioner, Will Norman, was there. Who I interviewed Norman, Will Norman, earlier this month.
0: In a rare yeah. interview that it a said in the Guardian, because he hasn't yeah. been interviewed much. So you, you you grabbed a good exclusive there.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, that was good. And yeah, it was great to meet him. And I think it's I think it's tricky. I think we forget that now um, now that in the early days of Boris Johnson's mayoralty and in the early days of Andrew Gilligan, the former London Cycling Commissioner's tenure. That actually very little happened in those first few weeks and months, and he has spoken about about the sort of frustration from campaigners and the same sort of frustrations we're seeing now. Obviously, Sadiq Khan and Will Norman are taking a very different tack now to what Boris and Andrew Gilligan took, in that they're looking to be a lot more conciliatory, a lot more um, collaborative as well, and looking to sort of dampen this bike lash which occurred under um, Gilligan and Boris. And I think I think what happened during uh, Andrew Gilligan's tenure and, um, was that a lot of stuff happened and that was great. And he was able to push those through and he was very assertive and um, and very effective in doing that. But I think it perhaps got to a point where there was a lot of resistance and perhaps now we've made the point that these routes do work, that it's a time to be perhaps working with people. And I can see see why they're doing that. I I can see that as a sort of, you know, they're looking at the long term improvements for London. There's an enormous population growth expected here. And obviously, this needs to happen. But um, it needs, I guess, I guess you need to bring as many people along with you as possible. And, and having spoken to Will um, quite a lot, and also Val Shawcross, the deputy mayor for transport, I get the feeling that that this is a genuine um thing that they're trying to pursue it's not just sort of words but i just i think there's a lot been going on behind the scenes in terms of improving efficiency in the in tfl which is quite a massive machine and um i yesterday there would have been an announcement about the new strategic cycle network which is going to be a a massive um thing for london but because of Perda, they weren't able to do it so um, that's going to be enormous. They've basically taken loads of data, census-level data, um, employment data, and um, they've managed to map where the key cycling routes could be or where the key cycling demand is. So I think that will be great, and they're and they're very much sort of biting it at the bit to to get this out there. But um, there's constraints now. So yeah, I think I think there's definitely promise. I think. Perhaps things aren't going to be pushed forward so quickly, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's good for the long term. It's it's impossible to say at this stage. But obviously, everyone wants more routes. There's a, a desperate problem in London with air pollution, and I know I feel the effects and um, of that, and it is a worry. Um, so yeah, it's frustrating. I just, yeah, we'll have to. I guess time will tell. Do
0: you not think that the conciliatory approach, the the approach of being, you know, asking everybody their opinions is also yeah. a way of of slowing everything up because you yeah. can't please everybody uh, you know you, at some point you're going to have to bite the bullet and that's what gilligan and yeah. boris johnson together seem to do in that you, yeah. you you need a dictator to do these things because if you do it mm-hmm. purely democratically well the, the loudest voices will, will tend to be the the taxis yeah uh, mm-hmm. the people the very small minority of people mm-hmm. who drive in london carry an enormous amount of political weight because they're the MPs, they're the Lords. It's these people who who have the final say on this. So what Gilligan is is kind of saying is you've got to push these things through.
2: Mm. Yeah. And um, Jeanette Sadiq Khan also has said this and that was, that was um, very successful for her in New York. And, and I can definitely see this and actually Will Norman said this for the first time I, that I've heard him say it yesterday. He said, you know, we're not going to please everyone we are going to have to fight for these things and stand up for what we believe in um which which i think is right because you do need to and i think it's very hard for a lot of people to imagine the streets different from how they are today you've grown up on a street that's lined with parked cars where cars dominate the center of the road and everyone else is squeezed onto pavements and to many people that's what a street is and i think i think without actually seeing that without someone pushing that through it is going to be hard to get that change because you're you're just never going to convince people. Um, but I think in terms of I don't know in terms of I know that Waltham Forest Council have had great success with working with local businesses. They've on Leebridge Road where they're building a cycle superhighway. They which they say they want to be better than the ones that TfL have built. There's a bit of competition there just to see. Yeah, mm. um, yeah, it's good to see them being ambitious but um, they've been to the shops up and down Leebridge Road several times to talk to business owners and to, to explain to them, look, this is why we're doing this. This is going to be the outcome. Your businesses aren't going to die. Um, it's not going to be sort of Carmageddon. But yeah, I think, I don't know, I can I can see both sides. So yeah, I think there is definitely a case for talking to people, but at the end of the day, these things need to happen. This is an urgent health problem. 10,000 people are dying prematurely each year in London. There's a congestion problem. There's a huge amount of inequality. And the transport burden is, um, you know, is felt greatest by those who are most vulnerable in society. So there's huge inequality issues with the transport system that we have, where a minority who use cars, because it's convenient for them, are, impacting on people's lives to a huge extent in terms of social isolation in terms of air pollution and health outcomes and all of these schools in london that are by busy roads so yeah and i I don't know yeah i think i feel like they appreciate that it's just how it's going to pan out um we have to wait and see i guess
0: so we're we're bikey we're 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 in favor of bikes Mm -hmm. but will norman of course his title is it's not just cycling commissioner which is yeah. probably what what uh, Gilligan was he he's the walking and cycling commissioner so walking is london's majority transport mode
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: so absolutely ought to have you know somebody at the top pushing mm. to get uh, wider footways uh, yeah. to get more safety for pedestrians who let's mm-hmm. not forget are the ones who are actually suffering more than cyclists in many ways from uh, trucks running them down and yeah, buses that's running that's... them down. It's pedestrians mm-hmm. at, at huge risk here, and yet it is cyclists. We're, we're the mouthy ones. Yeah, Pedestrians, because it's everybody, tend not to have a specialist journalist like Laura Laker working on their, their behalf. So yes. do you think Will Norman's role, a joint role there, walking and cycling, do you think that's a strength or a weakness in that the two modes are sometimes certainly in the media, are portrayed okay. as as opposites almost.
2: Yeah, incompatible, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. There's been far too little done to promote walking and to promote the um, interests of those people, which is everyone, really. Who uses the pavements in our cities. And I think it could be a strength putting them together because I think that sometimes when you just talk about something as an improvement for cycling, everyone else who is let's admit it, it's like the 98 percent of society who don't cycle regularly um you know that's they're saying well what about what about me why are you doing why are you spending all this money on these sort of like you know the usual sort of monikers that you get for cyclists and i think by bringing in that sort of walking element you're allowing more people to get on board with this this urban environment improvement and thinking about you know, streets don't have to be dominated by cars, and I think there, I think there could be a real strength there. I guess the risk is that we end up with these useless shared spaces that end up being awful for everyone. That end up being intimidating for people on foot and inconvenient for people on bikes.
0: So let's talk about Oxford Street because mm. the, the, this is the, the uh, kind of like a, a flashpoint potentially coming up, and this yeah. is this is how maybe how maybe cycle advocates may be missing a trick here in that uh, there's some talk that oxford street which is you know a hugely uh, busy road for all sorts of traffic including including buses so there's talk about uh, closing it to motor traffic which everybody goes yeah fantastic in the advocacy world but then they've also said oh we'll also close it to cyclists as well which then the cyclists then go, oh, hang on. No, 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 no. We don't want to be banned. We just want yeah. the cars to be banned. Mm-hmm. So that's clearly, uh, of a, it's very positive from a, a, a public realm point of view in that yeah. it's going to be a civilized space potentially if they get rid of the motors. But if they also get rid of the, the, the bicycles. So do you think cycle advocates should actually go, well, hang on. It's probably better to actually give up that space Mm. And then it's at least it's a civilised space. Mm. And then that will reduce people's reliance on cars and buses. And then it'll increase cycling in other ways. Or do you <laughs> think there'll be guerrilla tactics to no, we're going to keep on cycling through a pedestrianised Oxford Street? Do you, do you see friction ahead?
2: Uh, Possibly. And it's interesting because yesterday at the Hackney Cycling Conference, there was a talk by um, a joint talk, interestingly, I believe for the first time ever, by um, Tom Platt from Living Streets and Simon Monk from the London Cycling Campaign, who spoke specifically about Oxford Street and the challenges ahead. And they're working on a parallel route to Oxford Street for cycling, um, because they're anticipating these issues. And they realise that you know people cycle down Oxford Street already, and it's pretty grim down there. You know it's narrow now. They've put these curbs in, and there's buses and heavy traffic, and there's people walking out, um, stepping out from the pavements. But it is like a key route, so um, I think they recognise that if it is pedestrianised, an alternative route isn't provided, then people will still be cycling, you know, commuter cycling down this street. So I, I hope they can find a parallel route. I'm not. I'm not um, intimately familiar with the streets around Oxford Street. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what will happen. It's
0: kind of a <laughs> wide street, it though. It, it, it doesn't mm. feel wide now because mm. it's, it's, there's so many buses yeah. blocking it. But if you take out the motor traffic mm. and make it a pedestrianised street, well, you've then got plenty of space to put a segregated cycle route through.
2: Yeah, that was my initial thought as well. Um, but yeah i don't i don't know um, yeah i don't know the answer to that
0: mm. well it's good that living streets which is, represents the pedestrians and
2: mm-hmm.
0: and simon of the london cycling campaign are doing joint talks that's that yeah that's definitely positive
2: yeah it's a big step forward it's really nice to see i was at a walking conference actually uh last month i think it was and yeah it's really good to see walking getting the attention it deserves i think and it's good to see people um who are advocating for cycling and people advocating for walking um talking to each other and working together because ultimately it's about improving our cities for everyone and getting more people out and walking because a huge amount of people don't get any sort of exercise
1: Mm.
2: week and you know people don't even walk i don't know for 10 minutes it's it's incredible actually because i've always been i don't know I've always sort of tried to walk and cycle. But yeah, it'd be good to get more people doing that.
0: So you write for the Guardian. Well, you write for lots of different uh, mm. uh, places. But the Guardian is is one of the places you write. So that's yeah. almost talking to a, a captive market. You know, you're not yeah. talking to the the Daily Mail, the the, mm-hmm. the right wing rabid tabloids. There, you're, you're talking to a, a relatively liberal, well, definitely mm-hmm. a liberal, and a, a relatively left wing audience who may be susceptible and and welcoming to Mm. to what you you say whereas if you were writing for you know the sun or the sunday times or whatever it it might not be the case so do you find that when you're selling your your journalism Mm. you've got a much easier route into certain kinds of newspapers compared to others or would you ever approach the daily mail and say i've got this great idea for a, a cycling article
2: I don't know about the Daily Mail. I've never pitched to the Daily Mail and I I don't know. I just I know someone who works for the Daily Mail and does great work for them and I think that can sometimes be sort of I don't know, overtaken by these shock kind of articles about isn't this isn't x y z horrible aren't these people horrible just sort of laying judgment on everything and yeah, I don't know. They do do some good journalism, but I and potentially it would be a great market, I guess, for encouraging more people to cycle. But I've always, just, I don't know, I've always shied away from the mail a bit. it's
0: it not like belly of the beast stuff in that mm-hmm. right for those kind of publications to, mm. to convert to convert people? Because maybe, yeah. maybe Guardian readers are already, you know, they're lentil munchers, you know, they're <laughs> sandal wearers, they're bearded. <laughs> they're, they're already into, into cycling yeah. anyway. So shouldn't we be talking to the... The the non lentil munchers.
2: We should be. You're right. We should be. We should be um, talking outside of our bubble. And and I probably should be trying to write for publications who wouldn't normally think about cycling and just try and get that positive message out there that actually this can be for everyone. It can. It's great for your health. It's great for your. Just makes you feel brilliant. It's a great way of getting around. And yeah, I think we probably need to do more. As Jen, I know you write for motoring motoring website don't you Mm, i do yeah so and i've always thought oh that's a good idea i should do that so i probably should actually it's a good point Mm.
0: hmm when's 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 a book out from laura laker then so you've got peter walkers i've I've just interviewed him a, a a couple of shows ago on <laughs> his bike nation how cycling can save the world so so when is a laura laker book going to come
2: out <laughs> i did start one actually a few years ago and then i just never got anywhere with it. i wrote well i'd say i never got anywhere i wrote a huge amount of words and then kind of it just got put into a, a shelf on my laptop as it were and on cycling yeah 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 it was on about it was about cycling yeah. it's a burgeoning market at the moment they're, they're
0: coming out you know every every week there's a new
2: do yeah people are on it.
0: bicycle advocacy it seems
2: yeah it's a big project
0: mm.
2: so, yeah maybe I, I should probably it's another thing i should do um but you've got an interesting project going at the moment uncovering these 1930s bike lanes yes i'd ask you about that can i turn this around and ask you some questions you can
0: yes interview me laura that's fine
2: (laughs) so um so yeah i saw your video which you produced about these bike lanes which were which were built what in the was it the 30s and i've just been from 1934 to
0: 1940 yeah
2: yeah yeah that's fantastic so so you've discovered some and and you're looking to discover more tell me about it
0: well it's called Let's Rescue Britain's Forgotten Nineteen Thirties Protected Cycleways. So, as you know, there's a clarion call to go Dutch in mm-hmm. in the UK and in the US and in many places, you know, let's 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 do what the Netherlands did. And so I discovered for writing for my bike boom book, which is coming mm-hmm. out, that well, we did do this. In the nineteen thirties, the Ministry mm-hmm. of Transport, which is the equivalent to today's department for transport. Yeah. They actually made local authorities, if they wanted to build one of these fast arterial roads, Mm. and which you had to get grant funding to do this, the the local authorities couldn't do it by themselves, they would only get that fat grant Mm. if they put in nine foot wide, separated, curb protected Mm -hmm. cycleways. And there's one route in London on uh, On the West Road, which is, is known to be, oh, they did that. There was a two-mile route in 1934. Oh. And then, so that's relatively well known. And then I started looking at other arterial roads and other period sources, and I found more and more and more. Then I went to the National Archives and dug up what the Ministry of Transport was actually talking about at this time. Mm. And I found out that they were actually communicating and getting advice from and engineering drawings from the Riek Waterstraat which Mm. is the Dutch equivalent of the Ministry of Transport so the MOT the Ministry of Transport the Department for Transport of of the time Mm. was going Dutch in 1934 and then I found all of these uh, period photographs of what looked like very Dutch wide curb protected cycleways some of them beside arterial roads which are in the video for the kickstarter Mm -hmm. campaign that I that i launched but then some were residential and it's like well hang on we had no idea that the britain had cycleways of this type in this Mm -hmm. era outside of just this one in in london and i discovered there was there's at least 280 miles of them
2: Wow. And you found this through the archives? It's just, well, it's part
0: of the archives. But then as soon as I find a period source that says, you know, X local authority agreed with the Ministry of Transport to Mm -hmm. to fund this road. I then you go to Google street maps Mm -hmm. and then lo and behold, it's like bloody hell. Yeah, it's there and it's still there. Wow! And sometimes it's some of them are just cars are parked on them. Mm. And they've been allowed to, to to degrade. But then other ones are almost exactly how they were built. And oh. so if you look at the video, you'll see one in Sunderland, which is not used as a cycleway, isn't even on, you know, highly comprehensive cycleway maps as a cycleway, yet is a fully protected Dutch style cycleway going around a period roundabout You know, these are the things that are the holy grail, you know, protection at junctions. Mm. And yet here we've got them and we've had them for more than 80 years, Mm. but they're no longer used and they're not considered to be cycling infrastructure. Mm. The one in Sunderland, people just go, oh, I wonder what that is. And then it it goes out of their head and nobody uses them because they don't know what they were built for. And it's all these hidden in plain sight ones, Mm. which could be quite quickly brought back into into use of proper signage and linking them into to other networks but it's also there's some that are actually we could genuinely dig up in that Mm. they're about two inches underneath grass strips by the side of roads. so when you go along some major highways in the UK there's these wide verges well some are just wide verges Quite a few, if they were built in the 1930s, actually hide concrete, curb protected, uh, nine foot wide cycleways. Wow. So I'd like to actually like a a time team, like an archaeological thing, actually dig them (laughs) up, bring them back to life. So that's what the Kickstarter is about, is bringing these cycleways actually back to life and, and to use them again. And I've got a partner in that project who's an urban planner john nails Uh, yes so we are genuinely i'm the historian and he's the he's the person who will go to local authorities and say do you realize you've got x miles of these 1930 cycleways look how we can mesh that into Mm. your existing network and if we do this junction here you've suddenly got an extra 30 miles or whatever of cycleways in your town
2: so how much are you looking to raise through the Kickstarter? And, what, and will you actually be digging up the... I guess you need to get permission from the council. But.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I'm not going to be going out with my spade. <laughs> don't worry. Uh, it, it, the initial target was £7,000, mm-hmm. which we started on Tuesday, and it's mm-hmm. now Friday, and we're, we're about £100 away from actually getting that goal. Oh, fantastic. But that's only... That's only the initial target. I've got to, to say it's very much a that can research and bring to life some of these cycle ways, but it will take more than that to research. Because there's there's at least eighty schemes across the UK. So we can research some schemes for seven thousand mm-hmm. pounds, but if we're gonna research them all, we're we'll gonna need an awful lot more than that. It's not just gonna be Kickstarter alone, so there's also gonna be grants hopefully from the Department of Transport. Local authorities will hopefully kick in some money. And if we get enough money, even even if we got you know, loads and loads of money, that still isn't enough money to actually physically dig them up. Mm. You know, that involves quite substantial cash.
2: Yeah, and potentially the asphalt underneath is quite badly, well, probably non-existent. Yeah,
0: so that these sort of things, you know, require, you know, multi-million pounds. Mm. So what we're doing is just... Giving local authorities the information that they're there but then they can they, they do have money, they have capital funding mm. to improve networks. Yeah. So they could actually start including these things in their <laughs> capital funding mm-hmm. and use that to actually physically dig them up or re sign them. Or in some cases I want to actually list them. Mm. So English heritage and Scottish heritage, you know, you like a listed building. Well you can list a cycleway. Ah. As, a, as a heritage route. So you could have this one in Sunderland or the one in the Great North Road in, in Durham. It could be a brown heritage sign saying this is a, a really old cycleway.
1: Yeah.
0: And that means they won't get dug up. If you list them, it'll be much harder to then rip them out and make mm. a wider road for cars. Mm. So ah. it's, it's, it's a two-pronged thing in that we're going to be rescuing some that are lying there, people don't know about. Others will actually be stopping any potential encroachment because a lot of the ones in London were dug up. And so the Kingston bypass, for instance, was, was uh, a 1920s road, which was a tiny sliver of concrete. Well, mm. that's now a, a six lane, major, major highway. And the cycle routes are all long gone. So an awful lot of these cycle routes were just obliterated to make more room. But there are so many out there that that didn't happen to. But, you know, in the next 20 years, it could happen. So, so list them, we'll protect them.
2: And what sort of response are you anticipating from councils?
0: That's actually the pleasing thing in that I had this list of 80 schemes, which I've already researched and I've found from period sources. And I kind of assume that I'm just scratching at the surface here. There must be more because the period sources from the the Ministry of Transport says there was 500 miles planned. So local authorities have been in touch like these various back channels and have said, oh, we know you've got this route. But we've often wondered about this route and this route. Could you have a look at that? And I've looked at them on Google Google Street Maps It's like, Mm. oh, that's absolutely bang on. They are 1930s bike routes. So there's probably 120, maybe 150 of these schemes all over the UK that we just don't know about.
2: And, and so these councils have got in touch with you, having heard about your project. Mm. They've actively gotten in touch. Yes. So that's quite promising, isn't it? If they're, I, I wonder if they're looking at it from a sort of historical point of view, if it's perhaps getting different people interested or getting them interested in a different way, because I think a lot of councils see cycling as maybe slightly irrelevant or a bit political, you know, cyclings for a certain type of person. So I wonder if, because these are sort of heritage parts of our roads, that they might, I don't know, maybe they might be viewed differently or.
0: Well, I won't mention that the local authorities that have been in touch, but let's just say that they're, they're, I'm pushing an open door with these, (laughs) these local authorities and that these are the ones who are already doing cycling stuff. Mm -hmm. And this just, it just a light bulb for them. It's like, well, hang on. We knew we had this cycle route, but we had no idea it dated to the 1930s. Mm. Oh, that makes so much sense. Right. Let's dig out the 1930s GIS mapping and see what else that could have been there. Mm. And then they could p- put that onto what they were already planning to do anyway mm-hmm. and just extend it. So it's those local authorities who are already kind of cycling-ish friendly. Mm. So they've got the government funding to do cycling. So it's one of those cities is is, is the one that's been in touch. And it it, it just expanded what I knew in that city, Mm. which I need local knowledge. You know, I can find some from period sources, but you need on the knowledge, you know, on the ground knowledge Mm. of people who really know their cities backwards who go, well, hang on, there's something very similar to that in this area and so what we found in London because all of these were in the outskirts of London the ones put in not in the centre of London
1: Mm.
0: was in in Morden and in Twickenham there was these routes put in and then when you start plotting them on a map it's very obvious they linked together so the south end arterial road was an 18 mile protected cycle superhighway of its time You know, 18 miles of protection uh, in that area is amazing. And then that linked into a cycleway on Eastern Avenue, another major road, which in itself linked into other cycle. And all of a sudden you've got 40 miles of protected routes in London. Hmm. And importantly, in the area of London where cycling absolutely is almost non-existent. Yeah, you know the outskirts because we, we yeah. know that cycling is doing great guns in the centre of London it's in the exterior parts of London where it just it died away mm-hmm. and that's where we need to to really go at it
2: yeah and are all these routes urban or so, are some of them sort of inter-urban on on roads going out of c- cities and towns? it's a mix most of them are
0: inter-urban in that <laughs> You wouldn't think you'd want to cycle beside some of these roads. So maybe that's why these cycle routes didn't survive.
2: Yeah, maybe they were a lot... Well, I guess they would have been a lot quieter.
0: <laughs> they were a lot quieter. And in fact, at the time, the cyclists just used the roads. Mm. They didn't use these cycleways because they didn't need to because there were no cars. So they just cycled along the roads and they didn't need to use the, the adjacent routes. Yeah. Now, of course, you wouldn't cycle on these roads you know, if you value your life. You know, Some of these are just truly, truly awful And it'd be much, much, much nicer to be on these adjacent routes Mm -hmm. if they were improved, because they they, they do need, you know, you can't just bring them back to life, you know, as is. It's
2: interesting time for you to find these now that Highways England has this money to make cycling improvements around arterial roads in England.
0: Mm. I have been in touch with them, Mm -hmm. and it is something that I would like to take forward with them. Because, yes, it's... uh, it's it's something that's kind of like right up their street, as mm. it were. And, and
2: they're actually they're actually doing some good stuff now. I think the earlier stuff they did was pretty rubbish, but actually I think they've upped their game a bit now, and they're actually building some decent, half decent stuff.
0: Yeah, and it's like you know, cycle advocates say, or they look at in the the Dutch example, and they look at the the snell routes, the, like the motorway style mm-hmm. cycle routes in the Netherlands, mm. you know, city to city yeah you know the, the kind of the electric bike routes. yeah you know like you know 10 20 mile distant which normally is meant to be well people won't cycle that mm-hmm. we're in the netherlands and, and in germany these routes are proving that no you people will cycle
2: yeah and know, people have always oh well. mm. you see quite um sort of retired people on these inter-urban routes in the netherlands don't you it's quite when i was there i did it was really it was really nice to see sort of couples or two couples of Retirees motoring along on their electric bikes between towns. Mm. Those
0: it's great. I mean, the, the, one of the, the huge weaknesses of cycling in the UK has been: there's these, and certainly in some places, you know, a roads are sometimes the only places mm. you can you can ride your bike. Yeah. Between towns and cities, because there are no other roads. Like if you look at Scotland, if you don't cycle on a roads, you're just not going to cycle. so there is an awful lot of demand for city to city cycling Mm. so what this project is showing actually is well you know this thing that many motoring advocates say is you know there's no space for cycling you know just forget it it's like well hang on there is space for cycling because we've had it for 80 plus years so let's just use that space that we've actually identified is there Mm. and let's make let's dig them up again and let's let's actually get city to city bike routes
2: yeah because i know that um, i was trying to think of the um of the name of the road there's been a campaign in oxford for ages trying to get this a road i can't remember which a road it is trying to get a bike lane on an a road and it's just been a massive uphill struggle and i don't know if you can if you can show that these routes have been around perhaps that would help Campaigners in saying, actually, this isn't such a weird
0: idea after all. Yeah, I have spoken to campaigners in Oxford, and, mm. and we've looked at the 1930 cycleways that were there. Mm. So Oxford is one of these cities that famously has very little infrastructure, yeah. but still cycle usage is very high. Mm. Uh, but if you, if you actually look, they did actually have cycling infrastructure in the 1930s, which is still used today. Mm. Which is the interesting thing. People assume that these things were put in in the 1980s or something, and it's like no. They've been there for for more than eighty years, <laughs> hidden in plain sight. You know, we just didn't know that these things were quite that old.
2: Mm, it's fascinating. You've you you've become the sort of preeminent cycling historian, digging up all sorts of interesting stuff about cycling in the UK. It's it's great to read your your books and and see you sort of bringing this history back to life and reminding us that. Actually, cycling is not a kind of new weird thing. It's something that's been happening for a long time. It's hmm. really interesting.
0: Well, I, I'm a great believer in history mm. being something that can elucidate and shine a light on the present and the future. Mm. And if we can show that we have done this in the past, and the Ministry of Transport, you know, did do this for a, a goodly number of years, well, they can do it again. Yeah. So that's that's the goal, basically.
2: Mm. Well, good luck with it. And so if, if people want to find out about your, it's got quite a long name.
0: <laughs> well, I'll put a link in the, the show notes. It's, uh, it's uh, the, the Kickstarter link. If you just search on Carlton Reed, you'd, you'd, you'd probably find it. Um, uh, but I also need actually your contact details. So this is what we do on the, on the show at this point. We, okay. we say, where can we get in touch with, with Laura Laker? How do people find you on the interwebs?
2: Oh well, I've just been actually doing a new website. I'll just check that I know the um, web address. I think it's com. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, literally because I had the Laura Laker graph for years, and it's just a blog, so I'm trying to impro- I'm trying to improve my yeah, it's Laura Uh and then other contact details, or is that enough? No, well where can we find you on Twitter? Oh, on Twitter, hmm. it's at Lakerlikes. So L-A-K-E-R-L-I-K-E-S. Brilliant. Wonderful.
0: I'll put all that yeah. in the show notes and, uh, and people will be able to, to follow you and, and follow your progress as a specialist cycling journalist at a very exciting time <laughs> for cycling. <laughs> so Laura, thank you very much for that. Great to for speak that. to you. Thanks, Carlson. Thanks to journalist. Laura Laker, there recorded earlier today. Uh, we we'll now like to uh, quickly stop for a commercial break, and we will go across the Atlantic to speak to David.
1: Hey, Carlton! Thanks so much, and it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a long time loyal advertiser. We're glad to have them back again, of course, in 2017. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen. USA at JensenUSA.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These folks, this is something we'll talk about on today's show, but these are folks who, who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. Now, talking about great deals, it is time for Jensen USA's annual bike sale, their 2017 annual bike sale. If if you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Because now it's spring and the sun is shining and the birds are chirping and it's time to get back out on your bike, check out Jensen USA's annual bike sale, and you will not be disappointed. They always have great deals on complete bikes. I mean, I'll just give you an example. I'm looking at their website, a 2016 Orbea Occam TRM30, normally $3,999, now just $2,699. What are you waiting for? It's a great bike from a great brand at a great price. Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's JensenUSA.com slash The Spokesman. We thank them so much for their support. And we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show.
0: Thank you, David. And we are indeed back. And we are back with episode 158 of The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. And my second and final guest is the author of a whole bunch of books about climbing hills. I'm talking to Simon Warren, and Simon is the author of, well, the book I've got in front of me is Cycling Climbs of Scotland, but that's actually the sixth in a series of, of climbing books that Simon has written. So you started, Simon, with the first one, which was the 100 Best Cycling Climbs, and then it, the series has spread from that, yeah?
3: Um, yeah, spiraled Out of Control, I like to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, the initial idea was, you know, the hundred greatest climbs in Britain, um, not purely based on length or steepness or just more of the overwhelming overall sort of, they ticked all the boxes. They were famous, they were used in races, but they could also be steep or whatever. Um, and it was a list that every, every British cyclist must tick off.
0: Hmm. And some people have, because I've seen uh, some yes. people saying, you know, I've ticked every single one off. And, and There's now,
3: there's now uh, to my best of my knowledge, six of us in the club. All right. once, once you join the club, I've had uh, a great expense, fake gold badges made up. Um, so I send you out your gold badge once you've completed them all, once you've proven to um, sat my satisfactory criteria that you've, you've ticked them all off then you get your badge and... Then you're part of the club.
0: So this is like Munro bagging. Then like climbers yes. knocking every single Munro off. Then cyclists have got their own equivalent.
3: It, they have now, yes. Which it's, is it's an incredibly flattering um, comparison. <laughs> um, I mean, it's one that's been made for a few years now. We'll, we'll see how it goes. before the, they won't be called Warrens just yet. But you never know. <laughs> um, it could be my legacy. But we'll see.
0: And then you've got the the one that's a, be more familiar to an international audience would be the fact that you've got the hundred greatest cycling climbs of the Tour de France.
3: Yes. Um, now the, the the way that came about was the when the Tour de France was coming to Britain for the um, the best Grand Depart of all time. Um, I said to my publisher, right, we've got to do something. We've got to we've got to do something on like the piggyback of this. I thought, well, let's do to the climbs of the race or something just a small little pamphlet or something they said well why don't you do 100 greatest climbs of the tour of france and are you joking you know you know i've got a full-time job that means i've got you know i've got 22 holiday days i'll have to ride all 100 within 22 days i said "Well, you go home you have a look and see if you can do it and if you can then we'll we'll put the money up so yeah i got my pencil out looked at the map quickly looked at where they all were Mm. it's going to be tough but let's give it a go and so we did and um they sort of funded the trips and i rode my heart out for the best summer of my life to be honest
0: (laughs) you said we there because in the in the scottish book that i've got in front of me there's a long bit in there about your dad because you're you're going on these trips with your dad and he's going bird watching and you're going cycling Is, is that how you've done all the books
3: um, no, I mean, to, to begin with, that, that was, it was the family holiday for the first couple. Um, we're going to Wales, and then we're going to Scotland, and then you're going to stay in the car while Daddy rides up a hill, then we'll come back, and then we'll keep going on to the next one. Mm-hmm. And then for the French book, well, I, I couldn't put them through it for the whole thing. So I took them on two trips. Um, I took uh, We did five trips in to town. I took a mate, Owen, and then a mate, Nick. And then for the Pyrenees, me and my dad went together. Um, the beauty of that is my dad can drive, my wife can't. So he could ferry the car from place to place, and he's a bird watcher. So no matter where I left him, no matter what altitude, he was happy. Um, you know, he was 75, and we got to the top of the tour, he was nowhere to be seen. And he'd seen a patch of snow about another hundred feet higher, and he'd walked off up there to see if he could see a snow bunting. Um, you know, the air's thin up there, so I was a little worried when he you know, saw him trudging back, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, he'll go up into the woods and and. You know, and, and always, always, always return. And that trip was just brilliant. And we sort of rekindled that uh, for two two trips to do the research for the Scottish book. Um, we both got a love of whiskey, um, and again, he's, he's a great travelling companion.
0: Yeah, because reading through the book, it, it's almost like a traveloguer So it's not just the hills; it, it is the the time you're spending with your dad, the time you're spending with smelly socks and yes. all of your gear and, and talking about putting plastic bags on your feet and stuff. So it, it's more than just a description of the climbs. There's there's more to your books. There's there's there's, there's well, a hidden depth.
3: Slightly. I mean, there's a little bit of an introduction, but essentially my books are all, um, let's say the first one, 100 places to ride. These are 100 pinpoints. Where you take your map, you put the pinpoints in, and then you join the dots. Um, they really you know essentially they're just guides to the hills and i let other people decide you know how they're going to link those together how they're going to get there and of course you know as they've gone on there is a bit of a narrative you know from from hill to hill things that happened on certain hills um but quintessentially this is yeah this is your little your little black book of, of where to find pain
0: so pain is something that the listeners to this particular podcast will be very familiar with the mostly roadies i would say yes. um, and very familiar with with probably going uphill as well in that that's something that cyclists of a certain type do like to do i'm i'm certainly very much into going uphill uh, on a bike but let's pretend that this is not um a keen cyclist podcast and and we are talking to just the average person in the street so the question is why on earth do you want to go up hills simon isn't that mental
3: well it's the challenge isn't it you have to set yourself challenges i mean whether your challenge is to be the fastest to the top or just to get to the top um the hill is it's a natural phenomenon obviously the the tarmac that that that, that traces its roots up it isn't but it, it, it's there for everyone to use. If you've got a bike with two wheels, then go out and tackle it because the view at the top is always better than the view at the
0: bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did you find that you were just good at this? Is this why you you do it? Because you, well, you, you
3: go yeah, through the pain well,
0: barrier or are you good at it? In, terms,
3: in relative terms, yeah. I mean, the story goes... Uh, to, me and my friend had been cycling for a few couple of months after, you know, after i bought a racing bike and he had bought a racing bike we didn't really know what we were going to do with it I you my knew my uncle was a cyclist so we went up with some old os maps and said point us to where the, the best hill is because we want to see how fast we can come down it
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know, in, in our search for speed so he, he showed us to a terrace hill which is in the first book we went out there and I was first to the top and I thought, that's all right. Yeah, I'm good at going up. But as we turned around to go down, I wasn't the first to the bottom because I just didn't have the courage. So it quickly worked. I quickly sort of worked out that I was better going up than going down. And as I started racing and racing in the club, I was Club Hillcon champion. And when I got to a bigger pond and there was bigger fish, then I wasn't quite as fast. But I always held my own and, and that was, that's just the discipline that suited my, my body shape. Because, you know, cycling, you know, you can be all different sorts of body shapes and find a discipline in cycling that you love, that, that suits you, which is is one of the, you know, it's a strange sport in that way.
0: In this particular book, this is Cycling Climbs of Scotland, which I've got, which absolutely piqued my interest because yep. while well, I'm in Newcastle, I'm not far from Scotland and and some of the southern routes are, are, are very reachable for me. Yep. But just to, to, for people to I mean, just describe what it is, it's, just, it's, it's basically maps... Uh, route profiles and then you give you grade you give them a rating so i've I've, califer hill i've opened here in moray it's got a a rating of two out of ten other uh, rides have got five out of ten seven out of ten and then you go to uh, a certain famous ride in apple cross which gets well i'm guessing must be your all-time favorite because that's 11 out of 10 so describe describe that particular holy grail of british climbing
3: I mean, it is, it is that and another one, Greg Dunfell, which is another book. They are the, the t- two toughest, but Blackney Bar probably is the toughest in Britain. It's, you know, for 364 days of the year, the weather is almost, in, you know, it's almost too hospitable. It's, it, it's, it's wild and it, it's long and it's, it's, it's about nine kilometres, I think it is, off, off the top of my head, page open, um, and just utterly relentless climbing. Um, the sense of achievement once you get to the top is—it's without you know without parallel in this country. We, we don't have mountain ranges. We aren't blessed with you know twelve fourteen kilometer climbs. But Blackni Bar is about as close as we can get to that. And just it's a combination of its wildness, its severity, its just you know the, the amount of effort needed to conquer it, which is why it got its uh, you know Spinal Tap eleven
0: out of ten. Because mm. this is uh, I suppose what we need to to when you compare and contrast, say, with Alpine climbs, is British climbs, they sometimes just go up at a pretty steep angle, whereas, yeah, the the, the, the Alpine climbs, they're mega and they look fantastic, but sometimes they're not actually that steep, in that they were built by really clever road engineers that took fantastic gradients, and they're actually relatively benign compared to some uh, UK roads, which are anything but.
3: Yes. I mean, you travel to the North Yorkshire Moors, you know, all the hills there just go in a straight line from the bottom to the top.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Whether it was just saving tarmac. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, there was no or lack of, you know, road building um, knowledge. But there was no, no faffing around with lassets and and lowering gradients. It was just right there's the top, there's the bottom, just build a road.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And there's a fair amount of that. And if it's really short, you know, just a bit of grunt and you get over it. Um, you know, if they've done that and outdo it, then we'll have, you know six kilometers of 25 percent and that'll be too much for anyone
0: mm. so what are your plans for future books and so if this is cycling Climbs of Scotland is the sixth have you got like um, best climbs of the world coming up can you reveal your future plans I,
3: well future plans at the moment well there are still a few more the, the regional guides coming out so the Scottish is the the six of the regional guides um to follow that will be northeast and northwest then you'll have eight regional guides and then at christmas there'll be a box set Blimey. with all of them
0: this is an industry
3: simon yes so <laughs> that's 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 where it have been you know the, the, the conversation a few years ago with my publisher well, let, let's do a box set and they thought great and then i thought oh god that's gonna be a lot of work so i've turned out eight in two and a half years um so there's there isn't actually another book started at the moment there are there are there are proposals that have been posted. I'd love to do a gyro book. I've done 20 mountains out there. Mm-hmm. We like to go on holiday in Italy, so whenever I'm there, I'll tick a couple off. But it's yet to yet to be rubber stamped. Maybe Ireland. There's a lot of people talk about Ireland, I and mean, that's 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 durable because it's close by. But as for the rest of the world, well, unfortunately, economics probably takes over. The, the amount of money it would cost to make a book, unless you know someone another publisher wants to put up the money, it's it's just not feasible. So tell us, what do you do for a day job then? Uh, well, actually, I do this now. I've always been a designer working in magazines um, until last March when my office was moved. I was took redundancy because the magazine industry is in terminal decline, and so I thought, right, I'm going to I'm going to make a go of a of hundred climbs. We're trying to run, you know, be my brand. Mm-hmm. So I'll do anything from. Be on TV to taking guide guiding routes. Um, You're know, taking people into the countryside to writing more books. There's an app now. The app was launched earlier this year, so you can digitally log uh, the first 100 climbs. And yeah, doing a bit of this and a bit of that. Whilst um, yeah, be my home office.
0: Okay, you talk about an app there. Staying on technical aspect of this, how do you physically? Um, digitally do your routes Uh, do you are you plotting it with a ruler and a little bit of string or are you Uh, much you're you're, you're plotting with Strava how how are you plotting the profiles and doing everything
3: when I first did the first book that was what 2010 there were I, did, I had no idea about Strava. It was a different world back then, and I was measuring things with string. <laughs> I was measuring using and marking contours on on a piece of cotton over a map to, to plot <laughs> profiles. I mean, proper old school sort of you know cartography. Mm. Uh, I think things have moved on, and, and Strava is a wonderful tool. Just click there it is there's a profile. Copy that, um, and now I plot all my roots on it. Um, but we know we, as a, as a kid we we would take a, we would go to the library we would photograph it photograph sorry photocopy a map. Take it home, mark on our route, put it in our pocket, go out and follow it. Um, Matt Reading is a lost art for the youth of today, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, a, yeah. Lot, of, a lot of string is going unused now, isn't
3: it? It, it is, yes. Mm. And, and, and slide rules or whatever mm. you might incorporate. Um, but yeah, I I sort of, you know, a route now, the weekend, depending, you know, it depends on what time you've got, which weather winds going, you'll plot something, maybe have a, a couple of attempts at a couple of segments to get the KOM and. And also, it's a time constraint. If if you plot your route, you would know where the hills are. If especially if it's a research trip, I've got five hills to ride and want to know the quickest way to do it. So if you've got it all programmed in now, it's saving you a lot more time.
0: Mm-hmm. Brilliant, Simon. Tell us tell us where we can get your books from, the publisher details, all that kind of stuff, and then give us your your social media profile all all the contact points and 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 where we can get your app from that kind of stuff yeah. tell us everything about you
3: okay everything well all the books obviously are available on amazon um drives the price down but yet it's very convenient uh, And they're published by francis lincoln um uh which is based in london um there are currently there's 100 greatest cycling climbs another 100 greatest cycling climbs hellingen which is my belgian book The 100 greatest cycling climbs of the Tour de France, and then regional guides to the Southeast, Southwest, the Midlands, Yorkshire, Wales, Scotland, and then two volumes to come: the Northeast and the Northwest. Um, My app, which is um, 100 Greatest Cycling Climbs app, is available on um, Apple's iStore, uh, App Store, sorry, Mm. and it's also available uh, on Google Play for Android. And there's also a Hellingen app as well. If you are traveling to Belgium and you want to know where all the famous Hellingen are from Liège-Bastogne-Liège and Tour of Flanders, then for a few quid, you'll have all the information you need downloaded to your smartphone. Um, Social media, at 100climbs on Twitter. I'm always on Twitter, usually moaning, (laughs) trying not to delve into politics, but finding it hard not to. Um, and I'm the same on Instagram at 100 Climbs. I'm not on Facebook because I just don't like it. Mm. And Strava, I'm Simon Warren at 100 Climbs. So I'm, I'm always posting something on Strava. And my Strava club, which is quite popular, which is the 100 Climbs Strava Club, we've got close to 7,500 members. Um, and I post regular blogs on there. And there's also www.100climbs.co.uk where you can buy hats and caps and mugs and uh, bottles I've got a lot full of water bottles if anyone wants them so yes it's my my brand is expanded. oh there's the DVD as well which is also available on Amazon
0: Simon I think that's the fullest answer I've ever <laughs> had to that particular question normally it's just at blah and that's it yeah. but no you are an industry Simon you're an industry
3: Oh, you, you've got to put food on the
0: table. <laughs> <Thanks> <laughs> Simon, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very
3: much for having me on.
0: Thanks to Simon Warren. And my first guest there was Laura Laker. This has been Carlton Reed for the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. For show notes and more, go to the hyphen spokesman dot com. The normal show with the normal crew ought to be back on Sunday, May the 7th, but I'm on Bike Biz Business in Germany, so it'll be delayed until one day in the week, starting 8th of April. Until then, thanks for listening, thanks for subscribing, and get out there and ride.